Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. It really is great to say that. It's been more than a week since I've recorded an episode. I drove back from Atlanta to Fort Lauderdale last Wednesday, and that is a long drive that I unintentionally made longer. But that is another story. Then I received my second COVID shot last Thursday afternoon, and that began a 20-hour Rip Van Winkle sleep session that then transformed itself into a two-day odyssey of moaning and groaning with flu-like symptoms, including nausea, chills, body ache, and the like. Just when I thought I was coming out of that, we had five days of scheduled vacation with friends of ours coming to see us here in South Florida. That's always fun, and we enjoyed the time together with our friends, but all of that certainly did impact the timing of when we could get the next episodes into production. The good news is that there is still plenty to talk about when it comes to the JFK assassination. As you know, I have, on occasion, dedicated an episode to someone special. In my life, that is quite a list, and I have really been blessed. I can honestly say I know quite a few special people. This week, a good friend of mine's mother lost her fight to pancreatic cancer. I know how hard it is to say goodbye to a parent. I've done it twice. It's never easy to let them go, even when it seems like it's their time to be with the angels. I dedicate this episode to my good friend, Craig Colbert, whose intelligence and nuanced perception are large, and whose kindness and generosity are yet still larger. Craig, our hearts are with you, my friend. May Maria be at peace with the angels and with her God. Today's episode is episode 22. There are a handful of key witnesses inside the depository that we still haven't explored yet, and this episode focuses on those remaining witnesses that were inside the depository and that observed Oswald and figure materially into the timeline as the moment of the shots drew nearer. In the end, it will be your call as to how all of this evidence stacks up. I hope you are taking notes. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 22. What a bombshell we left in episode 21. I am not inclined to make conclusions during these episodes. As I have mentioned before, I am trying to withhold my own judgments from the view of the audience until we get to the end of this odyssey, and we are all in the jury room together making a decision. In the end, we have to evaluate the preponderance of the evidence and the credibility of the evidence in its totality, and then give each and all the elements of evidence their proper weight. I broke with that concept in episode 21 because I believe that the evidence provided by the Fab Four timestamp, well, it just precludes Oswald from being on the sixth floor at the time of the shots. But wait, well, 
that might have been enough in and of itself for me, but there's more. There's even more evidence to consider around this topic. First, with at least one of the shooters, if there were more than one, positioned up on the sixth floor, why did three men, our three principal witnesses, Harold Norman, Bonnie Ray Williams, and James Jarman, our three witnesses who were sitting on the fifth floor watching the parade and who were directly below the shooter, hear those gunshots so clearly? And then have one of those men actually hear the shells hit the floor. And yet, all three heard no footsteps of escape by the shooter. We have already established that, if it was Oswald, there was no way that a delay in the escape could have taken place and have Oswald still beat Marion Baker down to the lunchroom. We know that from the timestamps. That is pretty powerful. But wait, there is more. On top of all of that, there are even more witnesses that we need to consider. There were more witnesses inside the depository that day that have bearing on the case, bearing on where Oswald was during that critical time frame, prior to the shots taking place. Probably the two most important witnesses left to hear from inside of the building, at least as far as it relates to Oswald's whereabouts in that critical time period prior to the shots being fired, are Carolyn Arnold and Mrs. Robert A. Reed. If you were a defense attorney and you were going to call a witness to help substantiate Oswald's alibi of being downstairs at the time of the shooting, it would be Carolyn Arnold. By the way, we will get to more on what Oswald actually said, that is, about where he was at, before this group of episodes is finished. Carolyn Arnold was working as a secretary at the Texas School Book Depository Company. Interestingly enough, she was not asked to testify before the Warren Commission, and her deposition was not taken by the Warren Commission. In fact, the Warren Commission report does not even mention her. She is, however, mentioned in an FBI report dated November 26, 1963. That report states that Arnold left her second-floor office between 12 o'clock and 12.15 on the day of the shooting to, quote, go downstairs and stand in front of the building to view the presidential motorcade, end quote. At that time, she was standing in the front of the Texas School Book Depository building, and the FBI report indicated that she thought she had, quote, caught a fleeting glimpse of Lee Harvey Oswald standing in the hallway between the front door and the double doors leading to the warehouse, all of that being located on the first floor, as we know. According to that FBI report, she was not sure of this, or rather, she was not sure it was Oswald, but she felt that it was, and she also believed that the time she saw Oswald was a few minutes before the 12.15 p.m. timestamp. She would later make a particular statement on March 18, 1964, to authorities, indicating that she did not see Lee Harvey Oswald at the time President Kennedy was shot. You can understand how this was a peculiar statement taken from one person. It was needed by the FBI to minimize the impact of the rest of her statements and help to justify their own narrative, the narrative around Oswald. She did, however, now clarify 
that 12.25 p.m. was the time that she exited the building to get into position to watch the motorcade. Again, interestingly enough, and this is a theme that has become so consistent with the statements of so many witnesses, Carolyn Arnold was interviewed in 1978 by Dallas journalist Earl Goltz. And in that interview, Arnold disputed the FBI's version of her statements. Specifically, she disputed the phrase fleeting glimpse, which the FBI report attributed to her. Arnold told Goltz, that is completely foreign to me. I would have been, it would have forced me to have been turning back around to the building when in fact I was trying to watch the parade. Why would I be looking back inside? That doesn't make any sense to me, she told Goltz. In the 1978 interview, Arnold further said to Goltz that she saw Oswald in the second floor lunchroom as she was on her way out of the depository to watch the presidential motorcade. Period. End of story. And the time she exited the building, which she had already confirmed back on March 18, 1964, was now 1225. Granted, that is later than the previously documented 1215 in the first FBI report taken on November 26, 1963, just a few days after the assassination. But that report also contained the altered discussion of when and how she saw Oswald. But her statements to Goltz are certainly a game-changer, if true. Carolyn Arnold's information in the Earl Goltz interview is the only testimony that we have of someone who saw Oswald downstairs in the Texas School Book Depository precisely at a time where other witnesses in Dealey Plaza were reporting a man, or in some cases, the observation of two men, in an upper floor window of the Texas School Book Depository. If Arnold's statements and Goltz's reporting of those statements are accurate, then Oswald was in the downstairs lunchroom at 1225. Well, then, there you have it. Kaboom! Here's another strong piece of evidence that even by itself, on its own, strongly suggests that Oswald could not possibly have been upstairs at the time of the shooting. He could not have fired a shot from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. Again, as we continue to hear and see so many circumstances related to this case where the Warren Commission, even though it had this FBI report available to it, albeit with information that was potentially misreported by the FBI, but even then still critical, and even though it was a fairly critical discussion regarding an eyewitness sighting of Oswald minutes before the shooting in a place other than the sixth floor, it was not deemed to be important enough for the commission to explore further. Can you imagine? And had they explored it further, of course, it just likely would have been deemed not credible. You remember those words, don't you? Honestly, can you believe this was all done in plain sight? I, I can't help but go back to one of the earliest comparisons I used in this podcast, a hypothetical street somewhere in West Texas in the 30s when someone might be shot in broad daylight and no one ever brought to justice for it. 
Some in the conspiracy realm call it Bubba Justice. There was no camera to take a picture, to take a video, perhaps some folks peering between the curtains out their windows. People who didn't see or say anything were just far safer than people who did. And that allowed the authorities to do what they wanted, regardless of whether anyone was looking. Not always, but often enough. Now, let's turn to the testimony and story of Mrs. Robert A. Reed. The Warren Commission did find it important enough to talk to her. Conveniently, the testimony of this grandmother and longtime employee of the Texas School Book Depository fit their narrative. Mrs. Robert A. Reed never gave her first name to the Warren Commission, but we do know that she was born in a little town outside of Dallas known as Serial, Texas. She worked as a clerical supervisor for the Texas School Book Depository Company. She had worked there for seven years at the time of the assassination, originally starting out at the postage desk. This nice lady, who, for the most part, must have had relatively uneventful days at work, had become one of only a couple of people who actually saw Oswell that day after the shooting occurred, but before he left the depository building itself. On the day of the assassination, Mrs. Reed went to lunch at noon, which was her regular time, but she ate hurriedly that day so that she could get downstairs and watch the parade. She brought her lunch, as she usually did, and she made her way from the school book depository office on the second floor to the adjoining second floor lunchroom in order to sit down and eat. Again, this was pretty much a daily routine, and she ate in the lunchroom on most days. Mrs. Reed would meet some of the other girls that worked at the depository at noon each day for lunch in that lunchroom, and they would do what people do at lunch. They would eat a bite and converse about things that are interesting to talk about and share with the group. Mrs. Reed was excited to see the parade and wanted to quickly finish her lunch so she wouldn't miss any of the action. Her husband, Robert Reed, worked in a building almost catacorner from the school book depository. That building was known as the Records Building. Right after she finished, she got up and found a telephone and called her husband. At the Records Building, there was a group of them that were listening to the news of the parade on the radio as it progressed. Robert would say to his wife that the parade was running about 10 minutes late. Still, she decided to go down and stand on the steps outside of the depository. In her testimony, she believes she left the building at right around 12.30. I think it must have been slightly earlier than that, given that she waited a few minutes before the motorcade arrived. The other girls that she had eaten lunch with had left the lunchroom already, and she was the last one from her group to leave. Before she would head downstairs to watch the motorcade, she would go back to her desk to pick up her purse and then also stop to grab her jacket and scarf out of the coat closet. From there, she scurried over to the front passenger elevator on the second floor and took it down to the first floor where she exited out to the front of the depository building. There, she stood on the steps for several minutes and then finally, the parade came around the corner, making its now familiar turn from Main Street onto Houston Street. She stepped forward, closer to the street, so she could be closer to the parade as it approached. And in a moment, 
she found herself standing right next to Mr. Truly and Mr. Campbell, both members of the depository management team. Like so many men and women that day, Mrs. Reed was anxious to see Mrs. Kennedy. As the motorcade came down the street, she was patiently waiting to see how Mrs. Kennedy might be dressed, and sure enough, she would see Jackie put up her hand to hold down her hat, holding it in place as the wind was blowing a bit that day down Houston Street. And then, in a moment, the presidential limousine went right on by her. Then she saw the vice president coming by right afterward in his own limousine, filled with dignitaries, and then it happened. Like the terrible replay that happened over and over again, a replay of the events that so many witnesses at Dealey Plaza heard and saw that day. Three shots rang out. Mrs. Reed distinctly heard three. And then, at that moment, she turned to Mr. Campbell and said, Oh, my goodness, I'm afraid that these came from our building. To her, it seemed like they had come just directly over her head, as she recalls it, and then she looked up in the windows and she saw three colored boys, as she describes it, African-American men, up there in the windows. She only recognized one because she didn't know the other two. It was one of the three young men we have already been introduced to. It was James Jarman that Mrs. Reed recognized. She knew that there were several floors up, but she didn't know exactly how far up in the building that was. Several floors anyway, for sure. At that moment, like so many other people who came into the consciousness of that circumstance, she realized that more was happening. By this time, Mr. Campbell had processed her comment about the whereabouts of the shots, and he responded back to her and said, Oh, Mrs. Reed, no. It came from the grassy area down this way, meaning that it came from the area that we now call the grassy knoll. Well, almost before she could look up, Mr. Campbell was gone, and there were people scrambling all over the place, and it was just massive confusion, as she describes it. When she saw people beginning to fall to the ground, it dawned on her that she needed to get out of the way, get out of the line of shots because there could be more fire. And then she wasn't sure why, but she turned and went into the building. Perhaps in her own mind, it was the safest place to go at that moment. Months later, on March 20, 1964, after the chaos was over, she too would be called back to the building for the reconstruction that was taking place with the FBI and other authorities. And what happened next would be timed, so it could be part of those crucial timestamps attributed to the critical actors in this play that the commission felt were critical to their narrative. Because of what happened next, Mrs. Reed made her way onto that list. Mrs. Reed dashed back into the main lobby and headed toward the front stairs. She was determined to get back up to her desk on the second floor, quickly scurrying up the stairs and back into the offices of the Texas School Book Depository Company. As she entered the east side door of the offices, there was Lee Harvey Oswald. Across the room, there he was. He was coming in the west side door of the office on the second floor. He was coming from the west, but heading east. And unbeknownst to Mrs. Reed, Oswald had just had his other chance encounter with Marion Baker. The lunchroom bordered the offices just to the north. As she approached her desk, 
only a few steps away from Oswald, she knew they were about to cross paths, and she made it a point to speak out to him, saying, Oh, the president has been shot, but maybe they didn't hit him. Oswald then mumbled something to Mrs. Reed, something that she would say was totally unintelligible, but both of them just kept walking. Mrs. Reed didn't try to pay any more attention to Oswald or what he might have been saying at that moment, because really, right then, she had no idea that Oswald had any connection to anything that was going on with the shooting. But one thing she did know was that he was very calm and that he had gotten a Coke and was holding it in his hands. Part of what got her attention was that Oswald was a warehouse boy in her terms, as they called him, and it wasn't often that they came up into the actual Texas School Book Depository office on the second floor. She wasn't concerned that he had done anything wrong, but it just wasn't that often that they came through there. The only time she had seen him in the office was to come and get change for the Coke machine, and he already had his Coke in his hand this time, so it didn't seem like he had come into the office for change. The men from the warehouse would, on occasion, come into the office, but it wasn't that often for any of them. They would usually come to the office to get change or perhaps to get something done with their payroll. That was all. That was it. As we mentioned, Mrs. Reed was a daily visitor to the lunchroom at lunchtime, and usually right at noon. Oswald definitely came there on many occasions, but he wasn't regularly spotted by Mrs. Reed. In fact, she speculated that she probably saw him only about three times in the lunchroom, and that he was normally reading something and was by himself, and he was keeping to himself. These were all attributes that seemed to be very consistently observed by a number of people who worked with him at the depository in that short time frame. Others did observe him more often in the lunchroom. It does seem like Oswald was in the lunchroom, and she remembers distinctly one time where he sat there in the lunchroom, reading quietly as the other girls in Mrs. Reed's group got along in conversation. After it was revealed that the person who purportedly was the assassin was Lee Harvey Oswald, Mrs. Reed wondered whether or not Oswald had sat there in the lunchroom with the ladies, ostensibly reading his book, but really, in truth, may have been listening to their conversations. That was just one more personal thought from one of the individuals who was so near the action and circumstance of this tragedy. One thing that was clear was that Oswald was only wearing a white t-shirt that day as he traversed the office. No jacket. Mrs. Reed remembers that very clearly, although she does not recall the color of his pants. They were clean clothes, too. As I just mentioned, the lunchroom shared a common wall with the Texas School Book Depository Company office. In the office is semi-enveloped by a hallway. Oswald could have chosen a number of different routes to get from the second-floor lunchroom to the second-floor stairs or the second-floor passenger elevator, either of which, once he reached them, would have taken him to the first floor where he could have exited out the front or the back of the building. Why he chose that exact route was not clear, but if nothing more than happenstance, it brought Oswald and Reed together. 
Mrs. Reed had no day-to-day personal contact with Lee Harvey Oswald other than seeing him engaged in his work or occasionally in the lunchroom, and in fact, did not even know this man's name until after she recognized him on television. During the March 20th, 1964 reenactment, they would reconstruct the events after the shots took place and the subsequent path through the building that Mrs. Reed took. And that sequence would take two minutes to complete, meaning two minutes after the shots were fired, which was what it took for Mrs. Reed to make her way back to her desk on the second floor. This is quite consistent with the time that it took Oswald to run into Baker in the lunchroom and then pivot from the lunchroom and start making his way through the depository offices. Warren Commission Exhibit 497 shows a complete map of this area, if you have any interest in this. And the penciled-in numbers and markings on that exhibit are explained, for the most part, in Mrs. Reed's sworn testimony and deposition with Mr. Bellin and Mr. Dulles of the Warren Commission. Mrs. Reed would recall one more bizarre moment after the assassination, where Oswald's mother, Marguerite, attempted to visit the school book depository. She understood that Marguerite got as far as the first floor, and that was all. Things didn't calm down for those school book depository employees, that's for sure. The building was now synonymous with the most famous murder in the history of the United States since the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. It wasn't a Ford's theater, but it was going to be just as famous or infamous, if not more. One interesting detail for those of you who are following along very closely, and most of you are, you may have wondered why, in the earlier episode, when we told the story of Marion Baker coming upon Oswald, that we made no mention of a Coke in Oswald's hand. That was an important detail that was highlighted in many stories over the years about that now infamous encounter between the two. Well, the short answer is that he didn't have the Coke in his hand at the time that Baker approached him. Baker testified to that effect before the Warren Commission. He testified that there was nothing in Oswald's hands at the time. But Oswald did have that Coke in his hand when Mrs. Reed saw him in the lunchroom. Let's face it, it makes for a better story if you tell it as if Oswald had it when he met Baker. In any event, there was a Coke machine there and it was available to him. Now, regardless of the time sequence, whether he got the Coke before or after he encountered Baker, you wouldn't have thought that at any time after the shots were fired, he would have stopped to have gotten a Coke. My God, if Oswald was trying to escape from the building as rapidly as possible, do you think for a moment that he would have stopped to have gotten a Coke? Either before Baker got there or even right after? That would not have been the action of a man in a hurry to get out of that building after he had just fired shots at the President of the United States. And by the way, if he bought that Coke before Marion Baker got there, then at that time, to the amount of time he needed to get there first. That makes it even more improbable that he started that trek from the sixth floor sniper's nest and got there before Baker did. If he were the shooter, with the Coke machine in full view, he had just made his way so closely down to the ultimate exit out of the building, so close to the ultimate escape point on the first floor. So, stopping to have a Coke before he decided to exit? Well, 
if all of this is true, then it is but one more tidbit where fact is stranger than fiction. I believe it to be fiction. I think Oswald was downstairs the entire time. Well, you know how it goes when you conclude too early. So, wait a minute. There are a few more witnesses that saw Oswald that day. Charles Givens is one of them. Unfortunately, he might be considered as damning to the defense, but we have to listen to all of the testimony. Remember, the name Charles Givens should be familiar to us. Mr. Givens was part of the crew that was laying the plywood up on the sixth floor, and he was the only other employee name that appeared to be unaccounted for when Roy truly made that initial tally of who was in the building and out of the building in terms of the employee list. That was a critical inventory taken right after the shots were fired. So who was Charles Givens? 38-year-old Charles Givens was born in Camp, Texas, and spent his life in Texas. He served in the Navy during World War II, and he had worked at the Texas School Book Depository for the last six years, occasionally taking a little bit of time off in the lower-volume seasons, as some of the work at the depository was somewhat seasonal, as we had talked about earlier. He worked on the first floor most of his time, filling orders and occasionally going upstairs when they were out of stock. Occasionally, he would have a need to go up to the fifth, sixth, or seventh floors to get stock to replenish the base supply that was on the first floor. But on Friday, November 22nd, he was in the middle of some recently assigned duties. He was part of the crew that was laying the new plywood floors up on the sixth floor. And by Friday, they had begun to work on the west end of the sixth floor. He got to work around 7.45 a.m. that morning. He didn't interact much with Lee Harvey Oswald. Nobody did, really. But he did know him. At least from the standpoint that he would basically, on occasion, talk to him. Basically, just about filling orders and any other common things that would occur on a day-to-day basis as both were involved in filling book orders. Givens would point out to the commission that occasionally he did find that Oswald would fill out an order incorrectly, and then Givens would have to point that out to Oswald. Givens would reiterate what so many others have said about Oswald, and that was that this was a fellow that kept pretty much to himself and never had much to say. Givens saw Oswald for the first time that Friday morning at about 8.30 a.m., Givens had made his way up to the sixth floor on the elevator. The guys working on the floor went up on the east floor elevator. Givens decided that he needed to use the restroom and actually came back downstairs, and Oswald happened to be over near some bins that were still used to fill book orders on the first floor. Interestingly enough, Charles thought he was wearing kind of a greenish-looking shirt that day and pants almost of the same color as the shirt. Givens noticed it because, from his own recollection, it was practically the same thing Oswald wore all the time he worked there. According to Charles, Oswald never changed clothes the whole time he worked there, and he would wear the same-looking pants and shirt with a gray-looking jacket. Givens was back upstairs quickly to work on the plywood floor. He didn't see Oswald again until about 11.45 a.m. that morning. As we had discussed in an earlier episode, 
The guys laying the plywood were knocking off for lunch, and they were all in the two freight elevators. As they raced down against each other, Givens would recall that they passed Oswald standing at the gate on the fifth floor. Givens and the rest of the group had come downstairs for lunch, and then Givens discovered that he had left his cigarettes in his jacket pocket, and his jacket was upstairs. So he took the east elevator back upstairs to retrieve his jacket and cigarettes. When he got back upstairs and he was on the sixth floor, he headed about halfway between the freight elevators and the southwest corner windows. He retrieved his cigarettes and he headed back to the freight elevators when suddenly Givens spotted Oswald not too far away from the southeast corner of the sixth floor, not too far away from where the sniper's nest would come to be. Oswald had his clipboard in hand, the one that he had used to pull orders, and he was walking toward the freight elevators in the rear. He was headed toward Gibbons. Gibbons eyed him and called out to Oswald, Boy, are you going downstairs? And then followed it by saying to Oswald, It's near lunchtime. Oswald answered back with a clear, No, sir. And then Oswald continued on with instructions to Givens. When you get downstairs, close the gate to the elevator. Givens would go on to explain what that meant exactly. That the elevator on the west side should be closed because you can pull both gates down and it will come up by itself when you do that. You may recall that we heard a slightly different mechanical application from one of the other men that was working in the plywood crew. Givens proceeded to make his way down to the first floor on the East Freight Elevator, but when he got there, well, there was yet another surprise. The West Elevator wasn't there for him to send back up to Oswald. He didn't have any idea where it was, but it wasn't there, and there was nothing he could do. So he simply turned to join his friends for lunch. Givens was fairly confident that the time was about 11.55. Well, he pivoted away from the door and went and joined Harold Norman and James Jarman. Both Norman and Jarman were standing over by the front door windows on the first floor. Finally, the group decided to go outside and watch the parade. They all stood there for a while, and then Charles decided he was going to walk over to a nearby parking lot because he had a friend that worked in the lot that was right there around the corner at Elm and Record Street. Record Street is one street east of Houston. Givens headed over to the lot, and from there, he walked up Record Street to the corner of Record and Main, and that's the point from which he watched the presidential motorcade. There he was joined by two friends, James and Edward Shields. Then the shots rang out, and Givens ran back to the front of the depository, where he witnessed the same chaos that everyone else saw as people began to head toward the railroad tracks and the grassy knoll. By that time, though, the front entrance of the depository had been sealed off, and no one was being allowed back in. So Givens made his way back to the parking lot. Later, James Jarman and others were sent home early from work that day, and they would find Givens there at the parking lot. After finding out that work was done for the day, Givens decided he should go back and pick up his coat and hat at the depository before he headed home. So again, he headed back that way, 
but as he reached the depository, he was asked to identify himself, and moments later, Officer Dawson asked him to take a ride to the police headquarters, where he would then, in short order, make a statement and have a conversation with Captain Fritz. It was undoubtedly a long day for Charles Givens, and even longer for others. But what he had seen, seen so close to the noon hour, was contradictory to what others seemed to be saying about where Oswell was, and his position there in that general area on the sixth floor, so close to noontime, was troubling. And the fact that he was up there at noon, and Givens got off the elevator and didn't see or hear him, or anyone else for that matter, until a moment just before he rode the elevator down, reinforces the fact that someone could have easily hit up there, before and after, yet Oswald's request to send the elevator up, well, that could have meant either he wanted to come down for lunch, or he wanted it to be positioned for the proper moment of an escape. Either seems plausible. And why would he declare that he was not coming down? Possibly to keep them from coming back up to get him if he said he was coming back down but then did not come? Those guys really didn't eat with him anyway. It wasn't a likely scenario that they were going to come looking for him, and I think he knew that. And then again, saying he was not coming down might later generate suspicion. Damn, this is confusing. None of this evidence, none of it, was absolutely clear-cut. Well, it's getting late again. One thing I know, we are in pursuit of one thing, and one thing only here. That is, the truth. But I can't help but wonder about the threshold of reasonable doubt, as all of this goes from crystal clear to murky again. Well... There is one more witness to hear tonight, and it's short, so let's listen closely and then head home afterward. His name is Eddie Piper, and he is the 58-year-old janitor for the Texas School Book Depository. He started his workday every day at 10 o'clock, and that Friday, November 22nd, was no different. He got there at 10 o'clock, and Mr. Piper happened to see Oswald once and only once that day, but it was right at 12 o'clock noon, and it was down on the first floor. Mr. Piper, at that very moment, happened to look at Oswald, and he said to him, it's about lunchtime, and then went on to say to Oswald, I believe I'll go have lunch. And Oswald, this time, answered back with a characteristically short, yeah. And then he mumbled something more that Mr. Piper didn't exactly understand. But what he thought Oswald was saying was perhaps that he was either going up or going out to eat his lunch. So Piper just grabbed his sandwich off the radiator where it had been temporarily perched and went on back to the second window on the first floor, where he was intending to sit there so that he could see the parade. He chose that seat because the street was so crowded with people, and for him, the inside window was the better place to be. It was two over from the front of the Texas School Book Depository entrance. He, too, would hear three shots, and hearing three shots was about the only semi-consistent response from the bullets of eyewitnesses there that day. Well, here it is. It's even later now. 
and we just finished the last witness for the day. What a roller coaster. The next to last witness places Oswald upstairs just a few minutes before noon, and then, sure enough, the last witness places him back down on the first floor right at noon, some five minutes later. Surely, this was it for the up and down of Oswald. As you heard previously, he was seen again somewhere between 1210 and 1215 on a lower floor. And it seems inconceivable to me that he would have continued to bob up and down from the first or second floor and the sixth floor in this critical time frame if he really was the shooter. I'll tell you, my head swirls, but it's beginning to slow down again. It all makes more sense now. There really is a preponderance of data points now, all of them taken together. And it still leads me to believe one thing, and that is that Oswald was on a lower floor and not in the sixth floor sniper's nest when the shots were fired. I am confident that Oswald did not pull the trigger. But many questions still linger. If it wasn't Oswald, then who the heck was it? And it would seem wildly far-fetched still that Oswald himself was not involved at all in some way. Uh, Oh well. I'm exhausted now, and I'm not sequestered, so I think it best if I head home and make myself a sandwich. Because, man, I'm hungry, and I have to eat in order to keep my strength up. One thing is for sure, I will be sure to keep the TV off. I've got to stay objective and try not to listen to the opinions that may come on the tube about this case. Just the facts. Just the evidence. That is all we need to hear. That is my duty as a juror, and God only knows that it's piling up fast. There is a lot to evaluate here. It's really sinking in for me that justice is not an easy thing, especially when you are the one entrusted to get it right. And I'll talk to you again in episode 23. Thank you for listening to episode 22 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 